We're going to be looking at Micah chapter 1 today. Excuse me, chapter 6 today. And Micah is prophesying to Israel and to Judah along with Isaiah and Amos during the same time period. And Micah begins in 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Mor- Mor- Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And it's interesting to note that this town that that Micah grew up in, or Micah's from, is very near where Isaiah himself would call home to. A little background before we look at chapter 6. We, we know that the kingdom of Israel has split in this time, so there's Samaria, or Israel, in the north, and there's Jerusalem in the south, or called Judah. And under Solomon, Israel hit the height of its prosperity and the height of the territory of land that they possessed. But then there's a little bit of a decline. And then back underneath the reign of Jeroboam II in 786 he began, and of Uzziah, the king of Judah at the time, came another time of expansion and another time of prosperity. And this prosperity was felt all the way through the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And the people of Micah's time are still feeling that, so they're feeling the prosperity, and they're feeling the peace that they have. They're not fighting with Israel right now. In fact, they're cooperating with each other so that there's more prosperity. But we find also at this time there's two problems. One of them is the religions of the Canaanite people and the gods of the Canaanites. The Canaanites that the Israelites were supposed to drive out of the land when they possessed it and did not is having an incredible influence and impact inside of Jerusalem. So that what looks good on the outside as a prosperous time is really things that are decaying on the inside spiritually for Israel. Back to 1910, there was a discovery in Israel of 102 Sumerian ostrakas or ostrakas. These are a broken pieces. I had to look it up, didn't know what an ostraka was. It's a broken piece of pottery, uh, probably a vase or a pot itself, and on it had writing. And in the writing were Jewish names, Hebrew names, and attached to their names was the compound Baal, which helps us understand that at that time, Baal worship in Jerusalem or Baal worship in Israel was something that was quite common with many of the people in that land. We know God hates idolatry because he alone is God and he doesn't share his godness with anybody. And we would say that we can hardly believe that the Israelite people would be forsaking God for an idol. In fact, when we read Isaiah in chapter 44, he's making this point to the same people that Micah's talking to, and he's saying, there's the guy that goes out and he takes a log and he cuts it in half. And with one half of it, he forms a god and he bows down and he worships the god that he made out of a hunk of wood. And with the other half, he chops it all up and bakes a fire to cook his dinner with. And you think, how absurd. 
But that's the idea of idol worship. Application, can we worship idols in America today? With the same, I'm gonna call same spiritual stupidity or dullness? And the answer is absolutely true. We, we, we won't have statues. But the reality is an idol is anything that takes the place of God in our life. And it can be identified by what we love and serve the most over and above God. And you can fill the blank to that at any given time in life. So we're not altogether much different than the Israelites. It's just not as visible in our houses or in our yards. There's one other thing that they're having a problem with, too. We, we would call it social justice, but social justice or social injustice from God's terms. In the sense, the way that they were treating each other in Israel were outside of the covenant responsibility that they had with God so that people were being taken advantage of. In fact, Micah 2 and verses 1 through 3 gives us an example of it. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. In other words, they think about this at night when they're in their beds. And when they wake up, because they have the power to do what their heart and mind is devising, they go out and do it. They covet fields and they seize them in houses. And they take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I'm devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. If you read through Amos chapter 5, he'll add to this. So, so Israel themselves, one treating another. There's oppression coming on by those that have the power to do that, and there's disadvantage taking place, and people are being robbed in a legal way, you might say in that time. And maybe we can make the statement that unjust treatment of fellow man is a sign that our view and relationship with God, who created us, is off. I mean, it's really off. In fact, one, one writer puts it like this. There is no true love for man without the love of God, nor any real love or duty to God without the love of man. In other words, love for God and love for man go hand in hand. And when love for fellow man is waning or it is disintegrating, there's something going wrong in the relationship with God. So Israel and Judah, they're not seeing themselves like God sees themselves. Perhaps they're thinking because there's prosperity and because there's peace, things are good between them and God. They're underneath the Old Testament law. The laws about how they were to treat one another were fairly black and white. The question is, is God requiring more from the Israelite people than just what's being shown on the outside? And I think there is, I think because this is what Micah's going to go after at the end, God is also always intending that the heart is consistent with the outward action. Because we can go through the motions of the outward action, and on the outside, everything seems like it's right before God, but the inward heart could be far from it. 
Isaiah 1 and verse 19 and 20 says this, if, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good, excuse me, you shall eat the good of the land. In other words, Isaiah is saying, again, he's talking to the same people, same time period. And he's saying, it's not only obedience that counts. It's if you're willing. It's if the heart is consistent with what's going on on the outside. Samuel would say the same thing to King Saul. You remember King Saul is supposed to wait for Samuel, but he goes ahead and he wants to sacrifice. But before this takes place, he's having a discussion with Samuel. And Samuel's saying to him, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. And to listen, or the idea of hearkening, listening with the intent to obey, than the fat of rams. So I'm going to say that God does indeed want from Israel more, more than just righteousness on the outside. He's wanting the heart to be in line with it too. So God's going to take Israel to court in chapter 6 if you want to turn there. He's going to bring a lawsuit against them as their God. And he begins in, in verses 1 and through 2 saying this. Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. So he's calling to Israel saying, you can go first. I want you to plead your case, <coughs> excuse me, to the mountains and the hills that are around you. Why, why is he saying that? Because they've been there since Israel had been there. They've witnessed everything that is going on. So he's saying to them, so, so take your plea or take your case and present it to the hills. And then God talks to the hills in verse second, verse 2. Hear, your, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So he's telling Israel, look to the mountains, you can plead your case, and now God's saying, and I'll plead my case. And we're going to let the mountains be the jury because the mountains have witnessed everything that is going on. Could you imagine if you had the ability to see everything that was going on from the outside and, and be able to settle an argument between two people who may see it two different ways? I mean, we, we joke in our house at times what an what advantage it might be to have a camera inside our house in our living room so, so that we could reel it back and go, did I really say that? Did I really sound like that when I said that? Possibly not, but very much likely so because the camera doesn't lie. What if God were to take our walls? What if God were to take our living room, or take our workplace, or take wherever we are at, and whatever it witnesses, he was able to call it forth. We know he can't do it with the walls and stuff. But if he could, how would it indict us? So, so God is going to begin his courtroom with an examination with a question to Israel. 
Because it looks like Israel has somewhat against God. Verse 3, he says, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. So, so what is Israel meaning by saying God has wearied us? That's what we have against God. He's wearied us. Well, this idea gives the, the idea that you are worn down. Worn down to the point where you become impatient. Or to the point where you're absolutely exhausted. So they're in a way saying God has worn us down and he's exhausted us in some way. So that it might actually be God's fault that Israel's in the position that they are. Job uses the same word in Job 16, 6 through 7. He says, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He's made desolate all my company. In other words, he's saying to his three friends, if I maintain my position before God, doesn't do me any good because I'm still suffering. And if I remain silent and I just bear it, doesn't do me any good because I still suffer. God is wearing me out, says Job. He's exhausting me in this situation. Ever feel like God has exhausted you in some way? That, that God, because he's not acting on your behalf in a way that you would like him to react, causes you to, to feel this, that, that God himself is causing my inability to obey? If he would just act in a way that I would want him to act? And God is asking Israel, what possibly could he have done to wear them out or to make them feel that way? And to cause them to become impatient with him? So they just simply stop or quit obeying him. So can it actually be God's fault? Well, he answers it. And God answers it by proving that he has been faithful. He has acted for them. Verse 4, he says this. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. And none of those people were there. But, but he's wanting them to know how faithful he's been to the things he said. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So, so God removes Israel, remember, from Egypt. And he does it in a very powerful way with the ten plagues. And then he divides the Red Sea and he allows them to cross. And then he drowns all the Egyptians in that sea. And he gave him Moses, the prophet. And he gave him Aaron, the high priest. And he gave him Miriam, the prophetess. He gave them people that he spoke through to guide them. And he showed himself incredibly powerful. And he lays that back at his people's feet. Then he goes on to expand it a little more about his faithfulness. He says, O oh my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember, Balak went to Balaam and basically bought him off, paid him to go and to 
prophesy against Israel on his behalf. But remember what God did with the donkey. And remember when he went and he actually tried to prophesy, all that could come out of his mouth was what? Blessing. And God's saying to the people of Israel and Judah, did I not act on your behalf as a God to this nation that you are part of? And what were the things that happened from Shittim to Gilgal? Well, we find that one, God promised Joshua in Joshua chapter 3 that when they came to the Jordan River and they were ready to cross, he said that to, to excuse me, <coughs> he said to Joshua, got a lot of J's going on in my head right now, and it's not anyone that was the one that was trying to say. He says to Joshua, I'm going to exalt you before the people so that they will know that I'm with you in the same way I was with Moses. And when the priests that had the Ark of the Covenant, when they stepped their foot, feet, this is going to be a long one tonight, guys. When they stepped into the Jordan River, God caused the river to stand up on end and to be pushed back so that the Israelites could cross the Jordan River so that they would know that Joshua had the same standing before God as their leader as Moses did. Another thing that God did on their behalf, when they marched around the walls of Jericho, and at the end of the time, he said to them, I want you to shout, but there's a silence until that. So they marched the amount of time God had asked them to march. And then they shout, and the end result is that all of the wall falls down directly in front of them. And sometimes overlooked is the fact that Rahab, who God promises to save, lives inside that wall. And she's around all this as God protects not only her, but opens a way for the Israelites to defeat the people of that land. And God says, did I not act strong on your behalf when I did that? I think the last one that would be, be in that same framework is Gideon when he defeats the Midianites with a small army. So when we talk about the acts of God's righteousness for these people, it's not that he just comes to their aid in trouble. It's the fact that he's coming to their aid because he promised to be faithful to them in that regard. God was faithful to everything that he promised to the Israelites. So why would the Israelites and the people in Judah now be saying God's wearing us out? God's not acting on our behalf like we want him to. And then all of a sudden his list stops. And Micah begins to speak. And Micah speaking on behalf of challenging the Israelite people and the people from Judah now in verse 6. He says, what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? It's almost as though they were asking him, okay, if this is the case, Micah, then what do we do now? <coughs> and Micah asks him this question. How should one come before the exalted God? Literally the God of the heights. What's the proper way to worship God? What's the proper way to try and make these things right with God? And he says, shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? That, that would have been the prime 
sacrifice that someone could make as they came to God. He says then in verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of river of oil? Will the largeness of the sacrifice have some way of impacting God in a greater way? If we were to pour all this oil on it, the oil was used to make the sacrifice a greater aroma and a more pleasant smell. So if we just doused it with the oil, would that impress God more? Then finally he says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? We know God never required in the law ever that anybody give a child as a sacrifice. But we find in 2 Kings 16 in verses 2 through 3, King Ahaz, when he's 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Micah's saying, if, if you were to give your own sons as sacrifices, especially if a king was to do that, because the king's given up the heir to the throne, would, would this external show have any way of impressing God so that God would act on their behalf? And then Micah ends his argument with him by helping him understand this whole conversation somewhat irrelevant. Because God's already told you what you need to do. You just decided it's not what you want to do. He's already told you the condition of the heart that he's expecting with the outward action. But they ignored that. Or worse yet, rejected that. In 6.8, he says this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? In other words, it's not about the sacrifice. It's not about the outward effort. It's all about what's happening inside the heart itself. So what does it mean to do justice? It would give the idea of just doing what is right in any situation, <coughs> excuse me, so that what we did was right before God. And especially in the situation that they're wrestling through and the way they're treating each other. In other words, we might make this statement, I know this would be a little bit controversial because terminology is used differently today. That Christians ought to be all about social justice, all about it. But in this way, the social justice from God's point of view and in this particular passage is that we, we do what is right before God in all the situations we find ourselves in, especially with our fellow man. In, in other words, justice gets its definition from God. But we're living in a time that justice is associated with equity and equality. Those are two, two very strong buzzwords today. Equality, I believe we'd agree with, 
gives the idea that everyone should have the same opportunity. No prejudice involved in it. Equity, though, would, would take it a step further. And many would say, as you read through a lot of the articles today, especially a lot of the health um, organizations, that equity is absolutely essential for equality to take place. And here's probably where we would just go off the path in, in two completely different directions. Equity means that everyone should have whatever they need to attain the same outcome. The end result of equity is that everybody has the same at the end. And for them, that would fulfill the whole definition of equality. But that's absolutely impossible to do in any world down here. Because people are made so different. And people have different abilities and different gifts and different capacities. And there's absolutely no way to exercise equity in the way that it's being desired to be exercised today so that equality, that everybody ends up having the same opportunity and has the same things. Justice would be, justice in society, justice socially, would be what is the right thing to do for our fellow man in regard to our God who we're serving? What does God demand? So, so justice is identified by God because he's the only one that is just. And God doesn't adhere to what we might call fairness. Justice and fairness are two different things. God is completely just. So that whatever he does is completely right. And whatever he's requiring of all peoples on this earth is exactly what would be right and just. In other words, if God were ruling the earth and people were bowed down before him, we wouldn't have any problems like we're having today. We wouldn't have the discussions that we're having today. And there'll come a time when Christ will rule the world. And all of this will come out in real life time in that regard. So he says to him, do justice, love mercy. Again, not just extend mercy. Uh, could you go through the process of showing mercy to somebody on the outside? And the reality is, yes, we could go through those motions. But Micah is saying, God's asking us to love mercy. And to love mercy is to what? Well, one person says it like this. To love mercy is to freely and willingly show kindness to others. That'd be mercy. So it's more than just being merciful to others especially to those that may actually deserve our wrath. It's more than just showing kindness to them. You have to love mercy. It's not difficult to do the right thing when you love what is right. Because I just want to do the right thing. It fits. Or to extend mercy when you love what is merciful. You could do that. And it's very easy to extend mercy to a person that you love. You can give them a free pass because you love them. But it's really hard to give mercy to somebody you don't love at all. 
fact, you just can't muster love up in your own heart and in your own mind. There has to be a higher motivation. There has to be a higher goal, if you would. And we're going to say it's God and it's word and it's love of God and love for his word. Finally, he says, and walk humbly with your God. Walking humbly with God is just living in a conscience understanding that God is present. And God's presence in itself is what does the humbling. It's a conscious fellowship with God as we go about each and every moment of every day. In a way that it recognizes God as the Almighty and recognizes myself as his servant. That's what makes all the difference. So God was wanting more from Israel. That just on the outward appearance they would conform to the ways he wanted them to conform. David understood this. When David murders Uriah and he commits adultery with Bathsheba, he makes a statement in Psalms 51:16, For you will not delight in sacrifice. And again, the law would say, <laughs> sacrifice. Because that's the way that you come to God for the forgiveness of sin. And David's saying, God wants more than just that. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God, the ones that God accepts, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And it took me in my thoughts to our last memory verse also. Psalms 130, verses 3 through 4. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? <laughs> Nobody. But with you, O oh Lord, there's what? There's forgiveness. And the forgiveness is supposed to make us fear God. It's supposed to be so overwhelming. And it's supposed to make us so in awe of God for the, for the giving of forgiveness that he extends to us. That we extend it to other people. That we do justice. We love mercy. We walk humbly with our God. And finally, this walking humbly with God in a, in a conscious fellowship, in a way that recognizes him as God and us as a servant. Just goes back to probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible in, the, in this area. Genesis 17, 1. And when Abraham was 99 years old, again, he still hasn't got the promised son. And it's been over 20-some years, and he still does not have the promised son. So when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appears to Abraham and says this, I am God Almighty. In other words, can mean I'm the God that stands on the mountain. I'm, I'm the mighty, powerful God himself. Some look at the root shad in there, or I am the shaddai, and the root shad has the idea of breast. And God could be saying, I am the strong-breasted one, or I'm the all-sufficient nourisher, like a mother nourishes a baby. And if I've promised you that I could bring about a son through Sarah, who's barren, I will. 
I have every ability to do that. I, I'm that God that's standing in front of you. I'm all powerful. There's nothing that can stop what I promised. So look at me that way, Abraham. Recognize me in that fashion. And then he goes on to say this, and walk before me, or traverse this land, or wherever you go, Abraham, walk in my face, walk before me, walk as though as I'm always there. And again, it's like your mom on a field trip, changes everything, only it's God, I mean it's God. There's a real recognition of who he is and the view of who he is. Again, it's so overwhelming. And then be blameless. And that's supposed to be the outcome of it. When I see God for who he really is. And it's a reality to me. And I live this life conscious that he is before me every moment of every day. And he doesn't just look on the outside. He goes down into the depths of my heart and he sees all the stuff that's drudging down there too. And he's saying, walk before me. Walk as though you're in my presence. And to allow that to be the thing that changes the heart. So that you'll be blameless. So that you'll be righteous. So that you'll be just because you're living out what God's asked us to live out according to his word. And so God in the end wants more than what we have to give on the outside. More importantly, he just wants everything on the inside. And may God help us to do justice and to love mercy and to live our life walking humbly with our God for his praise and for his glory. Lord God, we are thankful for not, not the stories that you put in your word, but for the testimonies of the lives that you write about in your word. We're thankful for Abraham. We're thankful for his faith that is a testimony to us. Lord, we know he fell many times and in different ways. And yet, dear God, you say that you are not ashamed to be called his God, and so we're thankful for your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us if for some reason we came to a point in our life where we just feel like you're wearying us. You just haven't acted in behalf of us in a way that we really thought you should, and so that we feel like there's really no way out. Lord, we pray, dear God, that you would help us to continually throughout each and every day to be conscious of your presence. Pray, dear God, that it might not only curb what we do on the outside, but, dear God, that it would transform us on the inside as your spirit works through us and through your word. And Lord, may we live it out in all the situations we live in today whether it's a popular thing or an unpopular thing, we pray, dear God, that we might be a genuine testimony of your love for us to all the other people we meet around us so that we might do right by them too as an example of who you are. And we will give you praise and give you glory 
In your name, amen.